So uh, we have been in the, the book of Psalms, and um, I, I, I confess to, they're, they're not the easiest sermons to prepare for. Um, they, they tend to not flow like a lot of, you know, if, if you're preaching through a teaching book of the Bible, it kind of flows as teaching does. And sometimes Psalms don't do that. And so I was telling someone the other day that I feel like it's my job to maybe give you about 80%. And the hope is that you would go get the last 20% on your own, right? And so the Psalms, we've talked about this, are you read them once and then you read them again and you read them again and again and again. And after you read them a bunch of times, it begins to kind of take root in your mind and your heart, and it begins to make more sense. And so I hope that you've had this experience over the past few weeks, right? That you've had this experience where you're going through your day and something happens and your mind doesn't go to anger or frustration. Your mind goes back to these little phrases that we've been picking up on, right? Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, Why do the nations rage? Uh, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? We, we hope that throughout our week, you can kind of go back to these little phrases to remind us, right? I, I, I laugh about what the Psalms have done for me is they distract me to God. Right? The world around me is distracting me away from God, but the Psalms tend to distract me back to God. And so when I hear thunder, I think of Psalm 29. Right? When, when I see a, a deer out in the woods, I think of Psalm 42. Right? When, I, when I see uh, the sky and, and just a beautiful sunset, I think of Psalm 142. And I think about these, I get distracted back to God. And that's what the Psalms can do for us. And that's why I thought it'd be important that we teach through that. So, but there are, there are moments and there are Psalms when things aren't going the way they're supposed to. Uh, what happens when we want to worship God, but it doesn't work, right? Or you're not able to, or you, you can't in some way. So uh, back in uh, March of 2020, you guys remember March of 2020, right? Um, I was on a mission trip to Africa, and I had no idea what was really going on in the world outside of the small remote village that we were in in uh, central Kenya. And we were FaceTiming with my wife, and she was trying not to scare me as to what was happening, but she was also trying to be like, hey, be prepared for when you get back to the real world, things are going to be a little bit different. And so we got back to the airport and there were flights canceled and there was, you know, countries shutting down. We got to Germany and there were people walking around in hazmat suits. Like we didn't quite know what had happened in the eight or so days that we were in uh, Africa. And so when we returned back to, um, back to the U.S., right, when we got back to our homes, we had to sit in two weeks of quarantine and I remember getting an email from the church saying, hey, um, we're, we're going to go ahead and live stream this week. We're, we're going we're gonna to simplify. <coughs> we're going to, you know, until we have more information, we're, we're going to pause for a moment. And we, we as a church weren't able to gather together to worship. But, and, and you can have whatever opinion you have about that whole situation. I am thankful we have a leadership team that got together and made these decisions together. And we move forward uh, as a team in this way. But, but that was a moment, maybe the first time for many of us, where we had a chance to worship, but we weren't really allowed to. We weren't allowed to gather together, or we were either in a situation where we weren't going to. And so what do we do then? Maybe, maybe that's not your situation. Maybe we go back to what was going on to the people in, in the, the Jewish tradition during this time period. Right, you've been cast off. You've been taken away from your homeland. The temple has been destroyed. 
And you're living in a foreign land. You're in the corners of, of the Babylonian, the Assyrian, the Greek, the Roman empires. You've moved away from the worship of God in the temple or the tabernacle, and you want to go worship, but you can't. What if we, taken off to the far corners of the world, we can no longer gather together as a church family? According to an organization called Open Doors USA, it's an advocacy group for a persecuted church. 360 million Christians lived in countries where their persecution was significant. Physical persecution was significant last year. 5,600 Christians were murdered, 6,000 more detained, another 4,000 kidnapped, 5,000 churches were destroyed because of persecution. There are places across our world where it is dangerous for people to go and worship together. And so what happens if you find yourself in that situation? What happens if you find yourself there? And maybe, maybe for you, it's not like physical persecution, but social persecution. Oh, we kind of joke that this little, you know, median out here is the government trying to get us. I, I, I think they just don't make awesome decisions all the time, right? But, but there are other social factors that contribute to us not being able to worship together. Right? There are countless things that happen <clears throat> on, a, on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night that stop us from gathering together. We, we travel, we, we go uh, visit family, someone's, someone's sick. Maybe, maybe you're sick and you can't attend. And thankfully we have you know, technology now where you can kind of pipe in and we, we love that we can do that. But the goal is that we would gather together as a church family. Maybe you have social anxiety. Maybe you're compromised in some way in, in, with your immune system. And so you want to be at church. You want to worship, but you can't. So let me pause there first and say this. Listen, you're not alone. There are people all over this world. There are times in every single one of our lives where we want to worship and we can't. And in fact, sometimes not getting to worship leads us to moments where we wait on God and he delivers something different. But maybe you found yourself in a situation where you keep going through the motions. You keep attending, you keep reading, but you just feel a disconnect. You just feel disconnected from God, disconnected from the church, disconnected from whatever it is that you feel like God is asking of you. And there's a part of you that just wants to say, why am I doing this? That's exactly where we find ourselves today in Psalm 42. But, but before we start there, I, I want to go to another story. And it's in John chapter 4. So if you would turn over there, I'm going to kind of talk through it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but we'll, we'll get to it. So um, in, in John chapter 4, Jesus has started his ministry, and he's traveling through an area called Samaria. And there are these, um, there are these I don't want to say racial, because they were from the same kind of, ancestry, but there was these differences that the Samaritans and the Jews had, and it all boiled down to this. Where is the appropriate place to worship? Right? The Samaritans believed that where they lived, right, it was Mount, where, I just lost my place there, Mount Gerizim is the place where they were supposed to worship, and then Israel was like, no, Jerusalem was where we're supposed to worship. And so they fought about where was the correct place to worship. And this was like 500 years worth of fighting about this. Needless to say, they weren't big fans of each other. The, the Pharisees, the Jewish people would say that if you at least walk next to a Samaritan person, you are now ritually unclean. 
I mean, there is severe hatred for each other. And so Jesus, instead of going around like most Jewish rabbis did, he walks through Samaria and he stops at a well. And he stops at a well where a woman is and he asks her for a drink. Now, he's a good Jewish rabbi. He's not supposed to be asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. But Jesus is not your average Jewish rabbi, is he? And and I don't know if he knew the whole situation that was going to play out. I'm, I'm sure he probably knew. But I also think he probably was just thirsty. They walked everywhere. It was probably dusty. It was probably hot in the middle of the day. He was thirsty, and he wanted a drink. So he asked her for a drink. You know, Jesus, just like us, needed water to drink, right? And, and he, became, he, he got thirsty. And we need oxygen. We need water. We need food. We all need these things to survive, right? <laughs> but what Jesus was doing here was beginning a conversation about more than the physical. So he asked her, will you give me a drink? And her response is basically, you're not supposed to talk to me. He's like, why, why is it that you're talking to me? You're not supposed to talk to me. So Jesus responds with this. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, Jesus, that's weird, right? You're at a well where this woman is getting you water and then you turn it and you're like, no, 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 I'm gonna give you water. Jesus, you don't have a cup. There's no little stream around here. What are you talking about? You see, living water doesn't necessarily, like we, our minds automatically transfer that into the salvation of Jesus, right? <clears throat> but living water simply meant moving water. It was good, clean water. If your choice was between a well, which had stagnant water, right? Thankfully, they didn't live in Houston because it would have been mosquito water, right? But it was, you don't want well water when you have a stream that's moving. It's cleaner water, And so living water was that kind of water? Yeah, absolutely, Jesus. I'd much rather have moving water, cool, refreshing spring water than this stagnant well water. It's probably hot and got bugs in it and some weird guy walks by and spits in it randomly, right? I I want living water. But Jesus is kind of doing two things for here. He's reminding her of something significant. That you and I need food and water and air to live. But we also need something else. We also need something more. We, we need God. But if God just backed off, this world would collapse altogether. But if God stepped entirely out of your life, you would feel the full wrath of the world that we live in in ways you don't fully understand. And so God is intricately involved, even when it doesn't feel that way, because we need God. And so he asks, she asks, how will you give us this water? Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, right, the, the, the water in the well will be thirsty again. Obviously, they have to go to the well every day. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus is going deeper than just our physical needs. So she's like, Fine. Give me this water. I'd much rather not have to go to this well every day. See, she's still focused on this physical idea. And so Jesus asked her about her husband. And this is a tough subject. See, for the Samaritan woman, satisfaction, her acceptance, her love, all of that has come from her relationships. 
She needs food. She needs water. She needs oxygen. She needs love. She's looked for this significance in relationships, and it's failed her. In fact, she's been divorced multiple times, and now the man that she's living with is not even her husband. See, Jesus is offering more. He's offering her the significance she's looking for. So she kind of changes the subject. She says, so um, <coughs> how is it that we uh, worship? Like you Jews say we worship one place, right? We say that we worship another place. Where is it? She's asking the question, how do we get to God? How do we worship? And Jesus responds with this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, there's a couple things that we have to pay attention to. Jesus says, is coming and is now here. That means there was a time when it wasn't there, right? He, he's saying, pay attention because the time is now here. And, and these true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Right? There, there was a time when they were worshiping, but they didn't understand quite what they were worshiping. And those who were worshiping were waiting for the ability to worship in this way with spirit and in truth. And I love how Jesus connects these two ideas. Right, he's already mentioned the living water. He's already mentioned the craving, you know, the, the need for God. And then he connects that to worship. Because worship and this living water theme are intricately connected through the Bible. And so back then, you had a temple. Right? And the argument was, which temple do you worship at? And so once a week or twice a week or however many times you would do it, you would go to the temple to worship, and then you would go home and you would wait. And then... Later that week, you would go to the temple and you'd worship and then you'd come home and you would wait. And you'd go to the temple and you'd worship and then you'd come home and you wait. And Jesus is saying, what if you never had to go to the temple anymore? What if you could worship God in spirit and the truth every moment of every day for the rest of your life? What if you could be intricately connected to God? So that's the feeling that's, that's the feeling that we're getting from Psalm 42. So go ahead and turn back there. And the sons of Korah, who it says in the beginning, are the, the writers of this. And there was a, a group of Levites that would, um, they apparently wrote a handful of the Psalms. And they wrote this Psalm. <coughs> and, and the idea behind the Psalm is that they want to go worship, but they're not able to. So I'm going to read the Psalm for us. And I would love for you, actually, you know what, here's a good time. I have homework for you. Uh, so Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are, are often, uh, were for a lot of years, one psalm, um, but are now two psalms, and they're always read together. So we're going to work through Psalm 42 today. Your homework is for you to go read Psalm 43. Got it? Deal? I won't test you on it next week. I promise. I'm not going to do that. All right. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
How I would go with the throng and lead the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, one of the things that you learn as you read the Psalms and really study them is that the structure can communicate meaning. When you look at the structure of this Psalm, it communicates kind of a meaning to, to the way that the Psalm is to be read. And, and so you'll notice um, that there are two repeated sections. You catch that? It's repeated in verse 5 and verse 11. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So, so they're repeated, and then uh, in between, or above and below those two are this other part. And so what this other part is, is what's called a lament. It's called a lament. And it's often found in Hebrew poetry. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to laments. You guys know what book that is? Lamentations. Lamentations, right? So there's an entire book that's basically five, like, funeral laments about how the nation of Israel has failed to follow God's commands the way that they were supposed to. And so they're sad about it. Right? The Bible doesn't say don't be sad, right? The Bible says don't stay there. And that's what I think the structure of this psalm is really working at. A lament is when the worshiper cries out to God in their time of need. The, the, the lament is when you're thirsty and you want living water. The lament is when you feel that deep sense the world around us isn't working the way it's supposed to work. And instead of running to the significance of relationships or running to the comfort of idols, we hunger and we thirst for God. As the deer pants for flowing streams, my soul pants for you. You see, when we lament, it should lead us back to God. But you and I both know it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the lament leads us deeper and deeper into some depression, some anger, some hopelessness. When, when the lament is crying out to God because things aren't working out the way they're supposed to, <coughs> we find ourselves sad, we find ourselves angry, we find ourselves wanting to do something. And for the psalmist, there's nothing they can do. And so they refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why, why am I lamenting? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, that refrain in the middle or at the end of our laments connect us back to the God who is the only one able to fix the problems that we're facing. 
It connects us back to what God really wants us to understand is that we can thirst for water. We can hunger for food. We can need oxygen to breathe, but we also need a God to step in to the problems that face us. And that is sin and wrath existing in our world. Now, I love this idea that the soul is a word that we often use in our culture to mean like the the spiritual side of us that connects us with God. But to a Hebrew person, the, the word soul is kind of different than what we, would, what we would think. The soul is literally like a picture word for the throat. You think about what, what often goes in and out of the throat. Food, water, and air. Right? And so it's, it's, a, it's a word picture that reminds us that every part of us, right, our, our mind, right, what also goes out of our mouths, our throats, our words, right? We, the things we consume. And so, so the, the Hebrew person, when they thought the word soul, they thought the, the, the whole being, the, the thing that connects all of us as a whole person. So our emotions, our thoughts, our bodies, uh, the part of us that is spiritual in some way, all of that together is our soul. And so the person isn't just saying like, my, my spirit is grieved. They're saying every part of me is hurting because every part of me needs God. That's why the tears are in their bed. They're pouring out their soul. The waterfalls are drowning them because they're feeling forgotten. They're mourning. They're remembering. Uh, they're remembering when God had been faithful, but they have no way to go worship him. And so what do they do? They lament and they wait. And they wait and they lament. People come and they taunt them and they're like, where is your God? The God we conquered, where is he? And they lament and they wait. And they wait and they lament. See, Psalm 42 never really gets to a point where anything is fixed. Right? God doesn't come in, swoop in and fix the problem. The writer of the psalm just simply says, when I find myself lamenting, I refrain, hope in God. For again, I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. This is where the woman at the well finds herself. Right, they had a temple. Even though they were under Roman occupation, they still had rules to how they could worship. They had sacrifices. But they were still missing the Messiah. And so some, so much of the worship of this time period <coughs> for the Samaritans and for the Jewish was lament. God, why would you let this happen? God, why would you let this happen? Why are you continuing to allow foreign invaders to take over our country? God, why are you allowing these people to occupy our land? God, why couldn't we keep your rules and follow your statutes the way you called us to so that we could keep our land? So they lament and they wait. So this is what Jesus is saying. This is his response. <clears throat> Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Hey, worship's not going to be defined to a place anymore. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Right? Jesus. But the hour is coming and it's now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, 
Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not just about going through the motions of worship at the temple. It's about connecting the whole being to a God. Listen to her response. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She gets it. She gets what he's saying. She understands that at some point that Messiah is going to come and worship's no longer going to be defined to a place anymore because he will be the one to be worshiped. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, there's a lot of people in this world that claim Jesus never said he was the Messiah. They claim Jesus never claimed to be God. And in my mind, this is a pretty clear instance where Jesus says specifically who he is. Right? In fact, the phrase that he used, I who speak to you am he, sounds a lot like the name of God back in Deuteronomy or Exodus. That I am. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, worship is now available to you. You see, and we find ourselves a lot of times in this same place. Right? We know that Jesus has come to save us. We, we believe that Jesus stepped down, that he lived a life, that he lived in a physical form, in, in human flesh, that he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live, that he died the death that, that we deserved, and he was raised to life, and he ascended into heaven. We know that. But we still live in a world where brokenness exists. And we know that we await a day when Jesus is going to return and make all things right. But we exist now in the already and the what's to come. We can look at the world and we can get angry or we can lament. We can lament and we can wait. And we can be faithful to God and we can remember the good things he does and we can lament over the brokenness that exists and we can wait. You see, Jesus promises us that suffering is what awaits the Christian until he returns. We can run away from it, or we can lament, we can wait. So we continue to worship. We continue to approach God. We look at our world, and we know that God is doing a work, and will continue to do a work through the church. But we know that one day he will make all things right. That's where we get from Revelation 21. Revelation 21, Jesus uh, is sitting on the throne. And I love this picture because this is the picture of what is to come. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. <coughs> and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Look to worship God in spirit and in truth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes or beds. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty. The one who conquers will have this heritage. and I will be his God. And he will be my son. That, that's the picture we get of the follower of Jesus who is existing in the now, lamenting and waiting for a future redemption of Jesus coming. But we also have one more verse. For those who refuse to acknowledge God and his power in this world. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, <coughs> which is the second death. You know, you and I live in the already and the what, but we, we know what's to come. So we have a responsibility not just to lament and wait for destruction to happen. We lament, we wait for God to do the work in your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers because there is a death that awaits for those who don't know Jesus. And it is the responsibility and the calling and the commission of the follower and the disciple of Jesus to be brokenhearted about the sin that exists in our world and to share the message of good news with them. So we can lament. We can wait but it also requires us to act. Psalm 42 reminds us, it's okay to be sad about the state of our world. There is a God who is doing something.
name of Jesus Christ.